Welcome to the Three Strands Church Sermon Podcast. You're about to hear a message from our series, The Start of Something Great. Jesus promised to build something amazing on this earth. He called it His Church, and He told Peter that He'd use Him to get the whole thing started. In this series, we'll find out what Jesus had to cultivate in Peter and in us to position us for the start of something great. This is one of those Sunday mornings, it's probably not supposed to be like this on Easter, <laughs> and uh, this is one of those Sunday mornings that if I, was in, um, if I was in my senior year expository preaching class, I would get a failing grade on this sermon for sure. Uh, but that's okay because that guy's not here, so he can't grade me today, <laughs> right? Um, and that's okay because I just felt like um, I told Kenny before church started, I said, I don't even know how much I'm going to stick to my outline. So be ready, because like he's on the screen, you know what I mean? So I was like, be ready, man. I don't know, because um, I felt like I just needed to kind of shoot from the hip and share uh, some of my life and share what I thought God was saying to me through this story we're going to look at today. And uh, so it's just going to be kind of one of those mornings. Who knows how it's going to go? I, I can't say. But if you promise you won't walk out, I promise I'll finish. How's that sound? That, I'll, I'll get to the end at some point here, so... But uh, I was thinking about this game this week, Shoots and Ladders. You guys ever played? Raise your hand if you ever played Shoots and Ladders. Okay, that's pretty good. It's like eh, about 70%. About 70%. Raise your hand if you didn't play shoot, never played Shoots and Ladders. Let me see. Because some of you could just be lazy not wanting to raise your hand, right? So I'm trying to say. Okay, yes, yeah, so I'm right. About 70% Shoots and Ladders, right? So I was thinking about this game this week, but it had been a long time since I played. And so I... Uh, I asked the kids if they wanted to play, because they always want to play a game, you know. Of course, Stephanie didn't really want to. She shot me down the first day I asked. But I'm pretty relentless, so I asked again the next day, and then we ended up playing. And so uh, if, you haven't, if you're one of that 30% here that's never seen Shoots and Ladders, I'm going to show you the board just so you can see it. That's the Shoots and Ladders board. But it's really like a, uh, you know, like 100 numbers, squares. It looks almost like a big checkers board, right? And you put your little character, it's supposed to be four characters, but we lost once, probably like under our couch or something, you know. But we lost one, so Sydney was a rabbit instead. We had a little rabbit figure she was playing with, so she was a rabbit. But you put all your characters down there on number one, and then you spin this little dial, right? And, and whatever number you get on the dial is how many squares you move, and then you want to get to the end up to number 100, and if you're the first one to get to 100, you win, right? But along the way, there's shoots and ladders. All right, that's good. All right, Dan's with us. All right, Dan's with us today. The rest of you are asleep. Yeah, along the way, there's shoots and ladders, okay? So if you land at the bottom of a ladder along the way, you get to climb the whole way to the top of the ladder. You may skip 10, 20, 30 spots just by going one space, right? But if you land at the top of a chute, you go down the chute, right? All right, this is good, this is good. All right, we're we're going to learn something today, I can tell, because everybody, we're on our game now, okay? Everybody's sharp, ready to roll. Yeah, if you learn that the top of a chute, like here on 87, you'll slide the whole way down here to 24. That's pretty disappointing, right? So I played because I couldn't quite remember if that was exactly how you played. So I said, I want to play because I don't want to speak it wrong, you know, when I get up in front of everybody. But I was thinking about this game and this week, and I was thinking, you know, a lot of us believe that this is really representative of how life goes, 
right? That there's like a random chance to where I land or where I end up, and we can maybe spin this dial, but we don't have like full control over where it lands, and it ends us up in one of these squares, and sometimes that square bolts us up into like something awesome, and sometimes it slides us down into a pit of despair. Pit of despair, that was from... Anybody know what movies that's from? Princess Bride. Princess Bride. You got we're, we're not doing so good so far, okay? Everybody, let's step it up, all right? That's Princess Bride. If you haven't watched The Princess Bride, that's your Easter assignment this week. Go watch The Princess Bride. It's an excellent family movie, right? Andre the Giant's in that. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of think this is how life goes, right? There's a, a randomness to my life circumstances and situations, and sometimes it elevates me to a place I really enjoy, and sometimes it knocks me down to a place that I don't enjoy or don't like, right? And if you're playing against other people, which we were, as I was the other night, you find yourself, I'm the dad, I probably shouldn't say this, but you find yourself getting a little frustrated when the other people playing seem to get all the ladders, right? You with me on this? You guys with And you seem to get all the shoots, you with me so far? And, and so Sydney won. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, I know way more than her. I'm so much smarter than her. Like, it's not even quantifiable at this point in her life, right? Yet she is dominating me. And I'm frustrated, right? Logan didn't even want to play. Of course, I made him play because I needed this illustration for Sunday morning. That's why pastor's kids turn out so bad, Right? So I made him play, and he kept saying the whole game, can we be done yet? This is taking forever. Right. And he did better than me. He didn't even want to play, and he was doing better than me. And isn't that how life feels? The people that you seem to be like, I know way more than that guy. He's an idiot. And yet he has all the things I want, and I'm here at the bottom of the chute. That girl isn't even trying and yet she seems to be higher up on the chart than I am. Isn't that really how we think life is designed? But that's just Satan trying to trick you in your head. Because that isn't really the kind of game life is like. I think, and I brought a deck of cards, but Kenny brought me a nicer deck. So our deck was like a little, it's been used, right? They don't gamble and play games like this in Kenny's house, but in our house, you know, we... We do it up, so that's why ours are a little bit more worn. <laughs> so anyhow, Kenny brought me a nicer deck of cards, right? But I think life is less like shoots and ladders and probably a little bit more like solitaire. Anybody ever play solitaire? Raise your hand if you played solitaire at work, you bunch of liars. Yeah, right. Raise your hand if you played solitaire. Let me see that again, see what kind of ratio we got on that one. Okay, put your hand. And then raise your hand if you've never played solitaire. All right, pray, pray, raise your hand if you think all of us who play solitaire are old. Yeah, right, because they don't do that anymore, right? Now it's like other games, right? So solitaire. So I brought a picture. You ever seen this, right? Now does it look familiar if you haven't played, right? Solitaire. It's this game, and you're trying to, like, make runs to get your number the whole way up to the top or the whole way down to the bottom, right? And you're trying to go out of, out of cards. This is like a computer screenshot of a game. How many of you play your solitaire with a deck of cards? Okay, and how many of you play on a computer screen? Don't do that. The computer cheats, right? You guys all know that, right? The computer cheats. You shouldn't even start on the computer. Just always play with a real deck of cards. 
But what happens in solitary is you're dealt a hand, right? And then you have decisions to make on how you're going to play that hand. Now, if you play a game of solitaire with one single deck of cards, I'm, I'm not really doing anything with the illustration right now, but the cards were facing different directions, and I'm so obsessive-compulsive that that was bothering me, so I had to fix that out before I could go any further, okay? So that's what I was doing there, if you're wondering. It's not, it's not going to be a card trick, okay? But if you play solitaire with one deck of cards, 52 cards, right? And you dealt them out, and you started to play, and you didn't make one mistake, not one, not one mistake. The internet, if you search, will tell you that there are, I wrote it down so I'd remember the exact number, there are ten, eight in 10 to the 67th power options that you could play. And that's if you don't get any steps wrong. Now, if you get something wrong, you could still win, go out, but the, it would exponentially increase how many options there are. If you can't see that in your head, I should have put it on the screen, but if you can't see that in your head, that is an 8 with 67 zeros after it. It's how many options you have to play. What am I trying to say? Life is a little bit more like that. You're dealt a hand, but there are almost an infinite number of options at your disposal of how you're going to play that hand. And all of us could win and have played different options along the way. And, and I can play a game of solitaire at my seat with somebody else playing a game of solitaire right beside me and simultaneously be trying to win and at the same time helping them win and it not affect my game at all. That is a more accurate picture of what life is like. You've got almost an unlimited amount of paths you could take. And you're probably going to make some mistakes along the way, but you could still win. We could all still win, even though our paths look completely different. I think about this room right here, and in this room, there's people who have taken a path very different than mine. But we could still all end up at the same goal. And, and you having success at your game doesn't affect me or cause me to be angry at all. I don't feel jealous. I don't feel the need to cheat, to knock you down a chute. I can even help you because your winning actually doesn't affect my game at all. And so this is the, the formula for life I want you to think about over the next 30 minutes. That life isn't one random event after another where sometimes you're knocked down and sometimes you're elevated. It isn't a game against other people where sometimes they're winning and you're wondering why. No, it's your own dealt hand that God has given you that you get choice after choice after choice to play any way you decide. And some of those decisions are going to take you in a way you don't want to go. And some of them are going to take you away in, in a way you do want to go but they're correctable, and we can all get to the same goal even though our game, our hand, our dealt, what we've been dealt in life might look completely different. And so I had a, an up and down month 
Let's say it like that, right? I had a roller coaster type of month. It's been almost a month since my mother died. A lot of you guys know that. But I guess it would be, what, four Sundays ago now, right? Four Sundays ago is when she died. And that was rough, right? I'm not going to lie, it was rough. And um, just to kind of like let you in, so we go to Pittsburgh. She's in the hospital at Pittsburgh. And get there at like uh, 6 o'clock on Saturday, right, Saturday night. And, of course, Stephanie can't go in because she's got to, we got our kids with us. They won't let the kids in the ICU, right? So Stephanie can't go in. So I go in, and as soon as I get there, everybody else in the family bolts, right? Is that accurate? Everybody else leaves. And so I'm there by myself, and I felt alone. I felt by myself. You know, my mom at that point was on life support and uh, unconscious, and so I'm there by myself the whole night. And I'm sitting with her in the hospital room, and the doctor comes in, I don't know, two or three times during the night, pretty much asking me to pull the plug. And uh, of course, I didn't want to do that because I'm the only one there, you know? And I'm thinking, you know, the rest of my family ought to be here if we're going to make that kind of decision. And so I said, hey, they're they're coming back sometime in the morning, I think, you know, I'm just going to sit here with her and kind of watching the machine all night, hoping that her numbers would get better, and they just kept getting worse, you know, watching her fade in front of my eyes. And so I'm talking to her, because you don't know what people can hear when they're in comas or when they're on life support, so I'm talking to her about the good old days, and I'm talking to her, letting her know I'm there, and just asking her questions and all kinds of stuff, you know. And I told Stephanie, I told some folks, but I, I was in that moment remembering back to when I was a kid, and I was like 12 years old, my parents got divorced. And I remembered, you know, I've told, in my story, I've told a lot of you guys this, but I remember at that time, I used to keep a steel bar in my bed with me uh, because I would hear noises in our neighborhood and I'd be afraid like somebody's going to break in our house. And so I used to always think, hey, if somebody broke in, I'm going to have to fight them because my dad's not here anymore, you know? And so, uh, but in that moment with my mom in the hospital room, I felt that same feeling again. From when I was 12, it was the feeling of like, I'm going to stand guard here for my mom. I'm going to defend my mom. And I felt that, you know, and I felt like there's no way I'm leaving this room, you know. I'm going to make sure that every nurse that walks through the door, they don't get, she doesn't get her, their bad attitude. They don't, she doesn't get their worst day, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand guard for somebody who can't stand guard for themselves. That's what I feel like we do here. When you come to church, like we're standing guard for people who can't stand guard for themselves yet. People who are in comas, people who don't know how to make their marriage work, people who don't know how to raise their kids, people who don't know how to get what they want out of life financially. We're here standing in the gap, defending them. And I felt low in that moment, but I felt like this sense of honor that I had her back, you know? But it was hard. Just last week, I haven't told Stephanie this yet because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really, this, this, this isn't going to matter to you. But So that was like the low of my month. You got that? Okay. And so then this week, somebody comes to me and offers me a job. That's a secret. I'm not taking it. I'm not taking it. But they come and offer me a job making about $30,000 a year more than I make now. 
And it like wasn't even a decision to take it or not to take it. It was just like a no-brainer because the job would keep me from what we're doing here. And I was like, it's not even, I don't even have to think about that, you know? But I was just thinking, like, what a roller coaster to go from, like, that low in the hospital room to, like, hey, man, why don't you come and work for me? I'll give you 30 grand a year more than you're making now. I was thinking, that's how life feels, like shoots and ladders. But it's not. It's like solitaire. Look, I don't want to keep you here all day, so let me just get to this story from the Bible that I want to share with you. But I felt like that was important to set the framework for the story we're going to look at. And so I want to talk to you today about Peter. We're starting this series today called The Start of Something Great. And in reference to this story, it's talking about the church. That Jesus showed up and said he was going to start something great. He was going to use Peter as an integral part of it. And that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. That nothing would be able to defeat it. And we're going to look at that story over the next five weeks and how it plays out. And the things that God had to cultivate within Peter to make what we do today possible. But he also wants to start something great in your life and is trying to cultivate the same things in your life. So let me just summarize for you Peter's life. And it's going to sound a lot like this, okay? This is just some stuff I jotted down in my notes of Peter's life. He walks on water, right? But he sinks, He sees the glory of Jesus revealed in all of its fullness on a mountaintop. But he denies even knowing who Jesus is in a courtyard. He's full of courage, but yet he's found often cowering in fear. He drops everything in his life to follow Jesus, but then curses Jesus out to prove he's not even with him. He fights when Jesus surrenders. He has faith when others doubt. He resists when Jesus serves him. He declares his allegiance to Jesus when others won't. It's like a roller coaster. Where one story about Peter is him doing this amazing thing. And then the very next story is him failing big time. His life looks like a game of shoots and ladders. But maybe it's not so random. Maybe it's a hand God is dealing him. Asking him to play it. Continue to play it. Continue to make choices. Choices that will get him to the goal. Choices that will get us to the goal, the start of something great. So let me set the stage for this story. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus has been with his closest followers, his disciples, talking to a group of religious leaders, and the religious leaders are hounding him. They keep saying to him, Show us a sign. Show us a miracle. Do a trick, is what they're really saying. And if you do a miracle, if you show us a sign, then we'll believe that you're the Son of God. Then we'll believe that we should follow you. Do another miracle, Jesus. And he won't do it. And then he gets off alone with his closest followers, and he says to them, beware of guys like that. The guys who just want to see a trick. The guys who aren't really concerned about playing the game God is putting them in and getting to the goal God wants, but they just want somebody to make them happy and show them a trick. That's the backstory. And then later that night, Jesus is sitting with these, his closest followers. 
And he's going to ask him a question. And I think the question is directly related to those events from earlier that day where everybody was like, hey, show us a trick, Jesus. Show us a sign. Do something amazing. We want to see it. Yeah, then we'll believe. And I almost think there's a piece of Jesus is like, does anybody get it? And so he asks his closest followers this question in Matthew chapter 16. Let me read you the story. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, here's the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is a name Jesus used to describe himself. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You get what they're saying? Like, some people say, you're all these guys are already dead. Come back to life to do these amazing things, right? Then he asked them a second question in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah or you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So can we go back through that passage just for a second? And I want to talk to you about setting the stage. Because what God is doing through his son Jesus, in this story, is setting the stage for something great. So let's look back through the story just for a second. I want to go with you piece at a time real quick. Verse 13, Jesus comes to this region in Philippi, and he asks his disciples this question. Who do people say that I am? Who does everybody else say that I am? And look at the next verse. Who answers them in the next verse? Well, they said, they replied, some say John, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. You guys get that all of his disciples had some answers. You get that, right? They all answered him. But then he asked the second question. And the difference with the second question is, it's not about everybody else. Now he wants to know what you think. So he asked him, he asked him another question. Who do you say that I am? But this time, instead of all of them having an answer... Only Peter answers, and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I got thinking about that this week. You know what I thought? I thought, you know what? It's easy to talk about all the deficiencies in somebody else's faith, but it's hard to speak with honesty about your own faith. I wonder what the other disciples were thinking when Jesus asked this second question. I wonder if like some of their heads went down. Like, oh man, I'm not quite sure who you are. Some of them doubted. Some of them saw the miracles and heard the teaching, but they still weren't convinced. In fact, you find out that pretty much all of them were unconvinced until after he rose from the dead. Yeah, they followed him because of the miracles and the teaching was amazing. But it wasn't until he came back from the dead that it really convinced all of them. What's the difference? Peter's the only one in this moment that had the courage to declare out loud, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The rest of them, no answer in that moment. And I thought it's easy to criticize somebody else's faith. 
but difficult to be honest about your own faith. It's easy to point out the deficiencies in what somebody else is doing, but it's difficult to declare out loud what it is you say you believe. And I wonder how many of us, if Jesus came in here and he said, who do you say that I am? How many of us would either have to look down or honestly say, well, I think you're a guy that I do stuff with on Sunday. Or I think you're a pretty good man. Or I think you're a guy who gives me a lot of instruction for life. Or I think you're there to answer me when I pray. I wonder how many of us would say things like that. And how many of us would have the courage to stand up and say, you are everything to me. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. If Jesus is the son of the living God, then everything in our life has to be affected by it. If he's not, you're looking down when he's asking you that question. You're looking down like, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to have the right answer here. That, that was kind of a bonus that hit me. So he asked these two questions. Who do people say that I am? And, and who do you say that I am? And so what's the point of what I just shared? The point is this. Look, there are questions to be asked about people's faith. But the real question is about your own faith. Don't sit and wonder what somebody else in your life needs to do to improve themselves. Don't sit and wonder what it's going to take for somebody else to have the faith they should have. Instead, ask yourself, who do I say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus in my life? And so Peter seems ready. And what's interesting is there's a lot of debate. If you could flash up whatever verse that is, 17, I think. Yeah, 17. He says, you're blessed, Simon, because the Father in heaven put this into you, revealed this to you. You didn't learn it from any human beings. He's giving God all the credit for this. God gave you the courage to stand up and speak the truth. And then look at verse 18 again. There's a lot of debate on this verse. He says, now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock, literally translated like small rock or pebble, right? And upon this rock, he uses a di different Greek word, the word that means large cornerstone. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer. And so the question becomes, what is Jesus talking about when he says he's going to build his church on this rock? And some people say he means Peter. Some people means, say he means the statement that was just made. I say he means both. I think the context lends itself to both. That what he's really saying is, this is the major rock. This is the cornerstone. This is the foundation I'm going to build my church on. What foundation? This foundation, Peter, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And every single thing we do at this church is all about introducing people to the Christ the Son of the living God. I want people to walk through the doors at everything we do and be free to experience the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the cornerstone, the foundation. But he goes further and he says, hey, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And you, Peter, you're going to be a big part of it. I know that from the context of the next verse. Verse 19. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid, it'll be forbidden. Whatever you permit, it'll be permitted. I'm going to give you all the authority and everything you need to get this thing started. But it better always rest on the foundation of me being the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And so Jesus decides he's going to start this church. But it doesn't start right there. This is what's difficult when you're reading through the story. It's another year away. So why did Jesus say this then? It's like he was getting Peter ready for something he was going to have to wait for. And Peter seems ready. He declares the right thing. But sometimes God's preparation doesn't match up with our plan. And we think we should be further along than we are. And he's like, I got another year of preparation for you first. Because he has to prepare us for what he's prepared for us. Right? God has to prepare you for what he's prepared for you. And so Peter's still another year away from the church even starting. And that year is rocky. It's up and down. It's roller coaster looking. It's sinking and swimming. It's walking on water and cowering in fear. It's having courage. And it's denying you even know who Jesus is. And so flash forward to the next piece of the puzzle. And I called this erasing the shame. Erasing the shame. So you flash forward to this crucifixion scene and this resurrection scene. And Jesus gives everything he has for us. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And Peter, three days before that, had denied even knowing who he was. And I'm sure he felt ashamed. And we covered this last year in a series called Proof of Life where Jesus shows up to his disciples after he rose from the dead. And they're at the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing. They've been fishing all night and haven't caught any fish. And Jesus yells to them from the shore and they can't tell who he is. But he yells to him, hey, try fishing on the right side again. And so they let down their nets on the other side again, thinking, what's this guy know? We've been fishing all night. We're professional fishermen. We know what we're doing. And wouldn't you know it, a miracle. They catch all these fish. Almost so many that it weighs the boat down, right? They realize it's Jesus, and they rush back to shore. And Peter, apart from all the other apostles, he jumps in the water and swims back to Jesus first. And then you find this scene in John chapter 21 where Jesus, when they get to shore, has already made them breakfast around a charcoal fire. And he sits with them and they eat. He's going to have another conversation with Peter a year later from the first one. He's going to ask him another question. Let me read you the conversation. You ready? It's in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. Okay, in verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question again. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Verse 18, I said, Oh, verse 17, a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you like. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Listen to verse 19 because it's key and doesn't get taught a lot in this passage. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death he would glorify God. And Jesus told him to end it all, follow me. 
Peter's probably sitting at that breakfast feeling ashamed. Feeling shame that he just denied even knowing who Jesus was three days ago. And Jesus shows up to do what? Make him a meal? Comfort him? Maybe. But to ask him a question. Do you love me? Listen, a lot gets made in this passage about the Greek word for love. Maybe we make too much out of that. I don't know if we can insinuate all that from just the Greek translation, but there's four different words for love in the Greek. And Jesus uses the word agape, which is love that is self-sacrificing to the point of death. It's like the kind of love you would have maybe for your family. It's the kind of love for your kids. You would give up anything and die to protect them. That kind of love. But every time Peter answers him, he says, I have brotherly love for you, like you're my friend. And there's a lot made about that. Was Peter not loving Jesus the way he should? I don't, I don't know about all that. But what I know is Jesus kept asking him this question over and over again. It's like he was setting him up to say, hey, we're about to start. The thing I promised you was going to happen a year ago. We're about to start. And it's going to take everything you've got to the point of death. Do you love me like that? Do you love me enough to die for me? To give up everything for me? Because the day is coming when you are going to die for me, Peter. You're going to get led to a cross and you're going to be crucified. In fact, history records that they asked Peter how he wanted to be executed. And he said, I want to be executed on a cross, but upside down. Because I'm not worthy to die the same way my Lord died. Jesus is predicting this decades before it happened. And what he's saying to them is, hey, you might like me. You might love me like a brother. You might be so ashamed that you're afraid to declare out loud with as much conviction as you did a year ago that you love me to the very end, no matter what. But I'm telling you, that's the kind of love it's going to take. You're so beaten down by what you did three days ago that you're not proclaiming what you need to proclaim to be ready for what we're about to start. But if we're going to start something great, you're going to have to love me to the point of death. Because that's what it's going to take. It's almost the same question. Who do you say that I am? (laughs) You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then a year later, after Peter makes all these mistakes, plays all these cards wrong, Jesus says to him, do you love me? And he's like, I like you, man, like a brother. He's like, that won't do. That won't do. We need what you said a year ago. You've got to love me even to the point of death if we're going to make this thing work. The start of something great, the start of the church, what Jesus was trying to tell Peter, thinking I'm okay, thinking I'm a good guy, liking me a little bit, having one foot in the water, that won't cut it. We're trying to start something great in this county. God's trying to start something great in your life. Thinking he's an okay guy, Showing up to check out the show on Sunday morning? Dipping your toe in the water and reading a verse a day? That's not going to cut it. He's looking at you and saying, do you love me? And what he wants to hear back from you is, I've done a lot of junk. I've played a lot of cards wrong. And I don't even know if I have the guts to say I love you like that anymore. 
And he's saying, I died for all of that. Forget about all the mistakes, all the cards that have been played wrong. There are eight to eight and ten to the sixty-seventh power options we can do moving forward. I died for all that shame. Just love me. Just love me. I love how he ends the whole thing. He ends the whole thing by saying the exact same thing to Peter he said when they first met. He looks at him and he just says, follow me. Back on day one, Peter dropped everything and he followed him. And today, on this day, Peter drops everything and he starts the church. All right, I'll follow. I'll give up everything. Even if it costs me my life, oh, it will. Oh, it will. Even if it costs me my reputation, it will. Even if I have to put up with a lot of garbage, you will. There's a song I've been listening to for the last couple weeks called Greater Things. There's a line from that song I just wanted to share with you. It says this. You cleared away in the wilderness. You brought me back from my brokenness. You took my shame and you buried it. What you've done, I will not forget. Here's my job today. You ready? All of that to say this. Here's my job. The common human denominator is shame. Every single human feels it. They don't know that's what they feel sometimes, but we all feel it. Shame. Shame over what I've done. Shame over how I look. Shame over what I think. Shame. And that shame convinces you to put your head down when Jesus asks the question. Who do you say that I am? I don't know, man. I don't know if I can declare it out loud. I don't know if I can really say that because look at how I live. Look, look at how I think. Do you love me? I, I like you. I like I mean, if I loved you, wouldn't I be better? It's the common human characteristic, shame. Jesus is saying on Easter Sunday, I died for that shame. You're afraid because you're ashamed. You're passive because you're, because you're ashamed. You're, you're quiet because you're ashamed. You won't declare it out loud because you're ashamed. You didn't make more mistakes than Peter made. I doubt you've made more mistakes than I made, if I'm being honest. I'm pretty screwed up. But Jesus died for our shame. I don't have to feel that. I can let that go. Not in my own power, but because God will put it into my heart. Not not in my own power, but because Jesus will say, I got you. I got you. My only job is to look back at him and say, I may not feel it. I may not feel it. I feel unworthy. I feel inadequate. I may not feel it. I definitely don't deserve it. But if you say it, I'll believe it. I'll believe it. Salvation. In that moment, rescued from shame. 
You're never going to start something great in your life if you're living in shame. You can't. You'll always be too passive. You'll always lack courage. You'll always be looking at everybody else thinking they're getting more than you're getting. You'll always be looking at your own life thinking, I'm falling down a shoe, but really that's what I deserve, I guess. You'll always be sizing up your life as if it's some random game of chance that you have no say in and no control over and no ability to make any changes. And you'll always be looking at it thinking, I'll never be winning like those people are winning. I just want to read you what I wrote at the end of my outline here. Shame. It's the common human denominator. It's what drives us to self-medicate. It's what keeps us from believing God could love us. It's what stops us from jumping into the deep end of our faith. But what if Jesus knew you would, be, you would betray him? What if Jesus knew you would abandon him? What if he knew you'd deny him? What if he knew all of that and died for you anyhow? And is now waiting for you over the charcoal fire. The reason I mentioned that charcoal fire, can you flash back to verse 9 in John chapter 21? When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. You know, there's only two times in the whole Bible that somebody makes a fire with charcoal. This is one of them. Isn't that interesting? You know when the other one was? When it was a cold night right before they executed Jesus and there were people in a courtyard and some Roman officers and some little slave girls, they made a fire in a barrel. (laughs) They made a little fire out of charcoal to stay warm. And in walks Peter, afraid, scared, standing close to the fire to try to stay warm. And the little girl says, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, nah, I don't know Jesus. And then another little girl comes up to him and says, yeah, I think I saw you with Jesus. And he's like, no, I don't know who he is. And then a guy says, yeah, I'm sure you're one of his followers. And he says, I'm not bleeping one of his followers. It's almost like Jesus is redeeming Peter's worst spot. And say, I'm going to reclaim the spot in your head that's nothing but shame. You're hovering around this charcoal fire, and you're going to think about that your whole life. Man, look what I did. No, no, no. This is the fire I want you to remember. I'm redeeming the worst part and setting you up to start something great. That's what Jesus does. There is no too bad. There is no I'm too bad. There is no I've been too awful. There's only grace to cover your shame, to bury it. And to say, let's start something great. Beginning of the year, I said, it's going to be a year of greater things. What if today was the day that Jesus started something great in your life? You don't have to do anything. Just believe what he says. That he's the Christ, the son of the living God. We're going to build everything on that. And you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You can just look at him and say, yeah, I love you. I'll follow you.